We're going to hear God's word. Uh, First of all, from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. And Gary is going to come and read that to us. Thank you, Gary. The rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham, far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water, and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Amen. Thank you, Gary. And now we're going to read from Luke chapter 23. And Gregory is going to come and read those words to us, found on page 160, um, a few chapters later there in our Bibles. Luke chapter 23, verses 39 to 43. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly. For we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. Thank you. So we've been on a bit of a journey these last four Sundays, three Sundays. It's the fourth and next week. Uh, And then we... We are at harvest, and then other events take over, communion, Remembrance Day, and before long, we're into Christmas. And so, I've just been trying to help you get a a picture of what God's word, God's story, God's redemption story is about and how it will end. And each of these Sundays has kind of been, kind of bitten off more than I can chew, Uh, Because there's so many passages that you could choose uh, from. And so by talking about it, I I feel like I've left too many unanswered questions. But I hope to be here for many years, so I'll have plenty of time to clarify um, the finer points as we go along. But the big topic this morning is death's next moment. Let me remind you, if you haven't been here, what the big story is. 
The, the story of God's redemption is completed in, in the Bible, the end of Revelation, with the return of King Jesus to bring God's kingdom from heaven to earth, the new Jerusalem coming down. It involves the resurrection of bodies. It involves a final judgment. It, it is completed with a new heavens and a new earth, when heaven and earth become one. And maybe we'll talk about this a little bit next week. The best party that you have ever been to, what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. If that is the end, what happens in between? Where do we go when we die? If the resurrection of the body, uh, of our souls united with our body, is, is what the future is, what happens in between? And what is this existence like? If you were to read a theological book, they call this the intermediate state. The state of our existence that is inter between death and the resurrection of their body. The intermediate state. And they try and explain what that kind of existence, that kind of life is about. Quite a few books about people who have visited heaven in a vision, uh, gone there. Um, the last 10, 15 years, you'll have seen that a whole section has developed in our Christian bookstores uh, ex uh, talking about these things. Some of you may have come across these three 90 minutes in heaven when Don Pipe, Piper had a car accident and for 90 minutes he was dead, but in those 90 minutes he had a vision of heaven. Uh, he experienced the glories of heaven. A passing min a minister stopped and prayed for him at his car accident, and he came back to life. And in the book, the cover of the book says, The pleasures of heaven was replaced by a long and painful recovery. Heaven is for real. Uh, it tells the story of, his, of the son of um, Todd Burpo's son, Colton, who at the age of four visited heaven uh, during. An, an operation for a burst appendix and he told his parents several months later about what happened to him and his parents waited six or seven years to record it in a book. These first two have been made into films which you can see on Netflix or Amazon Prime. Certainly Heaven is for Real earned 101 million at the box office. 2010, uh, this one here, The Boy Who Came Back From Heaven, was released, Alex Malarkey's experience in heaven um, at the age of six after a traffic accident, which left him quadriplegic. A million copies were sold in five years. There's other books that you may have come across, 23 Minutes in Hell, one man's story about what he saw, heard, and felt in the place of torment. Uh, Bill Wise's recount of an out-of-body experience he had, and he has written a book about that. So what are, what are we to make of such stories? And I've always been guided by a review that I read by Tim Chalice when he reviewed the first two books uh, several years ago. And he asked us to be cautious. And he says we should be cautious for three reasons. He says, first of all, the Bible gives us no indication whatsoever that God will work in this way. There's nothing in the Bible, there's no clue at all that God would bring somebody to heaven and send them back again. 
It is for man to die once and then wait for the resurrection is the constant teaching of Scripture. The only biblical example we have of a man being caught up to heaven is Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 2 and 3, and we'll read them uh, shortly. And it's very interesting, as you will read, that he was forbidden to tell anyone about what he saw in there. He says, I don't know whether it was in the body or out of body, but I went to the third heaven, to paradise, and he says, and it's clear he was forbidden to tell anybody about it. And in the whole of the Bible, that seems to be a unique experience at a unique time for a unique reason that he was given that experience. So firstly, uh, Tim Chalice says, uh, reviewing these books, there's no indication whatever that, that, this, that God would do something like this. So it's not in the Bible. Why should it be happening now? Second, he says, the authors of these books say that through their experience, we now find confidence that what God says is true. But if hope is to be found in any person, it's found in Jesus Christ, not in a book about some person's so-called visiting um, of heaven. It is the Spirit working through the Word who will give us confidence in our faith. And what is faith? Simply trusting that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, that what God says in his Word is true. You don't need tales of people going to heaven or stories of, clay, of those who claim to have been there to help us to believe in it. We just need to trust the testimony of Scripture and to trust Jesus about what he has said about it. That I go and prepare a place for you and I'll come back and take you to be with me. Thirdly, such books are filled with beautiful pictures, reunion of family members, but what's often missing is Jesus himself. There's joy, there's love, there's bliss, but what's not in these stories often is the experience of Jesus. And yet when you read Revelation, Jesus is central to it. He is the hope of all the saints. Jesus is central to Revelation's vision of heaven and the new creation. But what is missing in these stories is the uniqueness of Jesus. It's his heaven. And then Tim Chalice ends with his review. And he says this, If you struggle believing what the Bible says, but learn to find security in the testimony of a toddler, well, I feel sorry for you. I think talking about heaven is, heaven is for real. And I do not mean this in a condescending way. If God's word is not sufficient for you, if the testimony of the Holy Spirit given to believers is not enough for you, you will not find any true hope in the unproven tales of a child. This hope may last for a moment, but it will not sustain you. It will not bless you in those times when hope is waning and times are hard. More recently... 13th of January 2015, Alex Malarkey, who wrote The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, released an open letter confessing that the entire account of his journey to heaven was fictional, and he implored them to renounce the book from their stories. In his letter, this is what he wrote. Please forgive the brevity, but because of my limitations, he's quadriplegic since the age of six since that accident, I have to keep this short. I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would give me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. 
The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by a man cannot be infallible. It is only through repentance of your sins and a belief in Jesus as the Son of God who died for your sins even though he had committed none of his own that you can be forgiven and you you may learn of heaven. Not by reading a work of a human being. I want the whole world to know that the Bible is sufficient. Those who market these materials must be called to repent and hold the Bible as enough. In Christ, Alex Malarkey. On the 15th of January 2015, the publishers confirmed it would be withdrawing the book. But as of last night, you could still buy it on Amazon. Todd Burpo, who wrote the book about his son, Heaven is for Real, stands by what he said in his book about his son. I'm not saying they definitely didn't happen. I'm just saying we need to be cautious. Cautious that you're going to take this above what scripture reveals and evaluate these kind of stories against what actually Jesus has revealed and God has revealed in his word. So what do the scriptures tell us about what awaits us the other side of this earthly journey? And so I've taken two passages just to, not to tell the whole story, but to give us some directions as we move ahead. Some, uh, uh, the first one is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke chapter 16. It's a parable. So Jesus is not telling us a literal and factual account of what happens after death to these two people. He's telling a parable, and he's telling a parable about wealth and how the wealthy need to be very careful about it. It's the rich man. Uh, that ends up in this place of torment, torment called hell. And so Jesus' parable is, is challenging rich people about their use of wealth. But the story makes sense because it's set uh, against an understanding of the reality of the afterlife. So what do we learn behind the scene about the worldview uh, of, of the afterlife that Jesus tells this story uh, building on? And it's quite clear here and in the rest of Scripture, there are two destinies. The time came, we read, when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away. Abraham's side is the place of celebration and feasting among the family of the righteous. The other place, hell, is traditionally in Jewish thinking a place reserved for God's enemies, those who have no thought of God, and it's a place of torment. Interestingly, both groups are aware of their surroundings. Uh, Lazarus at Abraham's side is comforted. Uh, The rich man is tormented. There's feelings, there's consciousness here, there's memory of the past. The rich man remembers who Lazarus is. He remembers the circumstances of his life. He remembers who his family are. He wants uh, a prophet to be said to to warn his family about what lies ahead of them. It's a story, but interestingly, there seems to be continuity here as well. But there's two destinies that we are, are talking about. And it seems to be that these two destinies are permanent destinies. In Jesus' parable, there is a great chasm that no one can cross over. 
And so with Jesus' story, once you end up in either side, you're, it's fixed. There's no ability to, to change and to, to work your way across to the other side, to the other realm, as it were. They are permanent destinies that are, are fixed. The Bible continually tells us that the choices we make in this life affect eternity. Uh, God has already sent to us hope in Jesus. And if we don't listen to him now, then we affect our eternal destiny. So it's interesting that when the rich man ends up in Hades, in in hell, this place of torment, he wants his other uh, brothers to be warned. But the story is that they've already had the prophets, and you've had the prophets, and they've had the law. And even if somebody rises from the dead, they're not going to believe him. They've already fixed in their hearts um, who they live for. And so there's a warning here about that the permanent destinies in the future are decided by the heart, our hearts now. Also, they seem to be immediate. Lazarus dies and is immediately carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man dies and he finds himself in this place of torment. Both are immediate and other verses in other parts of the Bible imply that there is an immediacy about what we, where we go to uh, when we die or where our souls go to, certainly. Uh, Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My desire is to depart, to die, and be with Christ, for that is, that is far better. Paul implies that the moment he dies and departs this earthly journey, that very same moment he will be with Christ. These texts of the immediate destinies help us reject two common views. The idea, first of all, that people might go to a place of limbo, awaiting a final destiny, is rejected on these and other verses. Or a place of purgatory, that you're not bad enough for hell, you're not good enough for heaven. So for those who are caught in between, a kind of purgatory place where you can work your final destiny out, both of those limbo ideas or purgatory views can be rejected on Philippians and and other parables and a, a story that we'll shortly look at that Gregory read. We can also reject the idea of soul sleep, uh, that when you die, you, you might not be aware your soul sleeps, so you're not aware of time. So the next time you wake up might be a thousand years' time or two thousand years' time, but it's the next moment, but it's the resurrection of the righteous at the end of time. And so uh, Jehovah Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists um, have this idea of our, our souls sleep when we die. But how are they to account for Philippians chapter 1? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My desire is to part and be with Christ now, for that is far better. Or even the thief on the cross, as we'll read in a minute, today you'll be with me in paradise. There seems to be an immediate day to our destinies uh, upon death. The fourth point is quite simply the entry requirements. This parable of Jesus is not about Lazarus, because he doesn't say a word. It's about this wealthy man and where he has ended up. He, he, he dies and he's buried. Everybody thought that wealth was a sign of God's blessing. Uh, and Jesus has to continually challenge this perception that, that it's how you use your wealth, it's not the fact that you're wealthy. 
So they would have imagined this rich man would have had a great, lavish funeral, that there would have been great singing at his funeral service, and then the story ends up that he ends up in hell himself, in this place reserved for God's enemies. And so on what basis does he end up there in Jesus' story, in his parable? He ends up there because he did not have compassion for poverty-stricken poverty Lazarus, who begged at his gate every day of his life. Therefore, he did not honor God by obeying his word, by caring for the poor. The fact that he didn't uh, have any help to this poor man Lazarus, despite his wealth, showed that he didn't care about what God says about how he should live. Lazarus himself does not say a word in Jesus' parable. Uh, so we don't, we're not given the reasons why he should end up in God's realm at Abraham's side. But here we have these two destinies that are permanent, that are, uh, that are immediate, and are determined by how we live in this life. I think that one of the points we need to emphasize is that everybody chooses where they end up. God is a respecter of people's wishes. If in this life they have no thought or interest in God and his word and living for his glory, God grants them their choice because hell is a place devoid of God's presence. But in this life, if they want to honor God and they want to be a child of his king and they're praying for that, then God honors the longings of their heart, they get to be where he is, where his glory is, is present, where his presence is good. God, heaven and hell are the result of God's respect for the choices that people make in this life. Let me go on to the two criminals on the cross who were crucified that Good Friday afternoon on either side of Jesus. One joins with the onlookers in hurling insults at Jesus. Just as the onlookers were hurling insults at Jesus, he turns to Jesus on the cross and says, Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself then. In other words, you're not the Messiah. If you're the Messiah, why are you hanging on the cross? You're just a pretender. But the other criminal, in his own agony, as he hung on the cross, defends Jesus to his friends. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly, and we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then in one of the deepest expressions of faith you will find in the whole of the Bible, Jesus on the cross turns to this criminal and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. He says, Jesus, remember me first when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. He does not call Jesus Lord, Rabbi, Messiah, Master, titles of respect. He uses Jesus' intimate, personal name. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So what was he thinking about? He was thinking about the Jewish understanding that 
The day of resurrection of the righteous is at the end of time, the day of the Lord, the day when God comes back and it makes this world right again. And God will raise the righteous to eternal life. And clearly, Jesus, you must be a righteous man because you've healed, I've heard about your healings. Uh, and God's power must be upon you. So when that day of resurrection for the righteous comes, you are surely going to be resurrected as well. So Jesus, when that day comes, if you're walking past my grave on that resurrection day, remember me. Have mercy on me. And then Jesus says these astounding words, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Again, there are two destinies. One here is not Abraham's side or bosom, the place of the righteous. It's called paradise. You will be with me in paradise. Paradise is a, a, a Persian word that made its way into Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. Nothing unusual to have words from different languages uh, in your own uh, we have Indian words, uh, bungalow, cheetah, chutney, pajamas, shampoo, bangle. So people on their travels went to India. They brought back these words that weren't quite in our language, and they brought those Indian words, and they're part of our common language now. Somebody went to Persia. They saw these beautiful Persian gardens, magnificent uh, things that they, you could never describe, and they brought that word for these gardens and these parklands, the word paradise, and they brought them back, and they became part of the Jewish languages at that time. And Jews began to describe Eden as like paradise. Uh, the Garden of Eden, they used the word paradise there. Or heaven is like, uh, it's paradise. It's a parkland. It's a beautiful garden. And that is what heaven is like. So here's these words I referred to earlier from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. When Paul, writing to defend his ministry, says these words, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, he's talking about himself uh, after his conversion, but he's not telling people it's about himself. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, but God knows. And I know this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. He was caught up to the heavens, the third heaven, he calls it, the present heaven, um, and he, he calls it a paradise. So he, he experienced it as like a, a beautiful garden and parkland, which were places of rest and refreshment, of blessing and peace. Fourteen years earlier, Paul says, I, this man I know, but we know it's himself from later, he had this kind of out-of-body experience, or was it in the body? He does not know. But he saw things he is not allowed to tell anyone about. He cannot utter them. But clearly this wonderful experience is behind what Paul writes about, what he's trying to encourage others. So 1 Corinthians 2, it is written, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed it to us by his Spirit. You can see behind it, he has, he's living off that vision, that picture, that experience that he had 
of being caught up into paradise and being given a glimpse of it. But he's not allowed to tell people what he saw there. Jesus says to uh, this criminal, Today, you will be with me in the paradise of God. So a few hours later, or however long it took, this criminal dies. And as he passed from this world in pain, he consciously found himself in the present heaven, which is described as the paradise of God. What kind of body did he uh, arrive at? We're probably out of time to look at this, but when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, two ancient figures stood there with him. There, uh, Matthew 17, Jesus was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. And just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Um, there's consciousness here. There's talking. There's memory and continuity about how they were before they died. The fact that Moses is the lawgiver, Elijah is the prophets. Interestingly, these two figures are believed in Judaism never to, to have died. Elijah was taken up into heaven by the, the, the fiery chariot. Moses' grave and his body was never found. So they were looked upon as the deathless ones. So these two figures who represent law and prophets and both did not experience death according to Jewish thinking are talking to Jesus to encourage him about, and talking to him about what lies ahead. The transfiguration itself is a picture of what Jesus' heavenly glory would be like in his, in his resurrection body. The disciples are given a wee glimpse of that glorious body here. But there are bodies next, is what the point is making. Moses and Elijah are there. I, 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 we don't know what our existence will be like in this intermediate state because the Bible is not interested in that. It is no interest in trying to answer those kind of little questions that we have. Its focus is on the new creation when our resurrection of our bodies. But being a body existence, a person, is fundamental to how God created us and he will recreate us. And so it's possible that in that intermediate state, he will clothe us temporarily until the resurrection of the dead. Bishop N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar, uses this illustration, which he says some people find bad, but he actually likes it. It's, and it's to do with the imagery of computers, uh, to do with the difference between software and hardware. You need a computer system, a hardware, to run your software, your programs on. He says, with the death of our bodies, our software, our souls, lose their hardware, their bodies. In the present heaven, God will take our software, that's what makes us us within ourselves, and temporarily run it in heaven on his hardware until we get our new upgraded hardware in the new heavens and the new earth to run our software, who we are again. If that totally confuses you, don't worry. But for those of you who can picture the imagery, you can get what's happening. There are two destinies. Here is a, a paradise given to this criminal on the cross. These destinies are immediate. Today, you will be with me in paradise. None, not some unspecified future de day of resurrection. Um, today means before the sun goes down, this very day, Jesus says, on the other side of our deaths and crucifixion, you will be with me in paradise. 
And what are the entry requirements for this place in paradise? We often tell stories about people arriving at heaven's gates and Peter is there and it's a misunderstanding when Jesus says to Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. And so this story is developed that he stands there with the keys of the gates. It doesn't work here because Peter's in Jerusalem when he dies a few miles down the road. Uh, but pretend this story that he, he arrives in paradise and there's gates there. It's not in the Bible, so just pre- go with my story here a minute. And somebody at the gate says, why should I let you in? What he's not going to say is because I lived a good life. Because he's just died as a criminal on a cross. The two criminals were probably part of Barabbas's terrorist band. The cross that Jesus died on was probably the one that Barabbas was going to die on. But earlier in the morning, Pilate gave the people a choice between Barabbas or Jesus to be crucified and they chose Jesus and Barabbas is set free and so the cross that has been prepared is probably the one that the Romans thought they were going to crucify Barabbas on later that day but instead it's Jesus who has sent to them to be crucified these two thieves are not nice people they're criminals they're horrible and they have been given the worst possible punishment because they are the worst kind of people so when he arrives in paradise this day the one thing he's not going to say is because i lived a good life and this challenges any idea that you get into heaven by being good there's no goodness in him and yet he's there so why should i let you in and all he can say is because jesus said he'd meet me here he said i can get in he said on the cross that i can be with him here And in my imaginary story, the person at the gates, if there are gates, says, well, if he said you can come in, you can come in because it's his kingdom. It's his paradise. He's the Lord of creation. So why him? What did he say in those few moments that made Jesus be able to say to him, today you will be with me in paradise? Think about what he said. We are punished justly for what we are getting, what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He recognizes that Jesus is righteous. We're punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. He's innocent of his punishment. He is a good man. He doesn't deserve this. He's a righteous man. He recognized that Jesus is righteous and that he is guilty. We deserve this punishment. We are getting what our deeds deserve. Justice is necessary for us. We are bad people. He owns his crucifixion as a just and civil punishment. But in this moment, as he hung on the cross dying in great agony, he has become profoundly humble. He confesses the bankruptcy of his spirit before God. There's nothing good in me. I have nothing to claim. He is righteous. We are getting what we deserve. I face it. In Jesus' words in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed who those who recognize that they have no claim upon themselves of goodness. To such kind of people who recognize who they really are, the kingdom of heaven belongs to. He's guilty. We are getting what our, we deserve. And if you're, getting, if you're guilty and you're getting what you deserve, the only hope for you is mercy. So he says, Jesus, remember me. Have mercy on me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. So he recognizes finally that Jesus is righteous, that he is guilty and needs mercy. And thirdly, that Jesus is a king with a kingdom. Remember me when you come into not God's kingdom, but your kingdom. And if you have a kingdom, you must be a king. For three years, Jesus has been preaching The kingdom of God is closing in on this world. God's reign is coming. And he says, God's reign is coming and you are the king of this kingdom. So remember me when you come into your kingdom. These are incredible words. Today, Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. We're going to walk together in the garden of paradise this very day. So when you read these words, no one is beyond grace and hope. We prayed earlier about our pasts. Whatever our pasts are, no one is beyond grace and hope. The thief's redemption assures us that it is never too late to repent, to humble ourselves, to put ourselves in God's mercy and to ask forgiveness from the king. The only thing that will put us beyond hope is to be like the thief on the other side of the cross who had absolutely no interest in who who Jesus was as a king or what his preaching was about or his righteousness. Or like the rich man in Jesus' parable who has no interest in reflecting the kindness of God in how he lives his life and how he handles and shares what God had blessed him with. The rich man had his religion, but God didn't have his heart. The other criminal on the cross is angry with everyone. Even with God, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, who hangs on a cross beside him. And therefore he misses everything that Jesus came to bring. Today, Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. Whatever that kind of existence may be like, and we are carried to the other side of a new life that begins there. And the one thing we can be sure of, it is with Jesus. Today you're going to be with me. It's my world, it's my kingdom, it's my paradise. There will be a quality of life there. Because it's Jesus and it'll be exciting and it'll be a blessing and it's a place of rest and refreshment. But as I'm saying, that's not the end of the journey. That's the resting place, the refreshing stop until the full redemption story is completed with the return of Jesus to his world, the resurrection of our bodies, and the new heavens and the new earth. We're going to think about that next week, the final. But think about these words. Today you're going to be with me in paradise. The choices we make now and today in our hearts Our heart's longing. Who does your heart long for? Who does your heart worship? The two greatest commandments you cannot get away from. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
mind, soul, and strength, with everything in you, and love your neighbor as yourself. These are the two greatest commandments. All the law and the prophets hang on these. And so we're looking at ourselves today, and we're recommitting ourselves to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, with everything within us. Because we want this paradise, we want this heaven, and our experience and longing for Jesus now is the reason that carries us to Jesus in the life hereafter. The relationships that we have with him now is the means and the reason why our relationship continues with him in eternity. And those who say, I have no time for God or religion or Jesus or whatever, I'm just going to live for myself and make the most of this world, those kind of relationships affect the kind of relationships you have the other side of that kind of death. And so it's a real challenge. It's not easy to kind of talk about these things. And I don't know you well enough to know your journeys, your past, your pains. The bad examples from Christians who have turned you off being more committed to Jesus. Forget about them. It's Jesus that we stand before. It's Jesus that comes before us today, who who gives us these words of hope. That if we see him as righteous, and we throw ourselves on his mercy, and we proclaim him to be the king, and his kingdom is coming, there is a promise today. Whenever that day will come, you will be with me in paradise. Let us pray. Father, you know our hearts and our struggles. And there's a spiritual battle at work in all of us, whether we are young people, whether we are working, families, retired, whatever our journeys have been. There's a spiritual battle that you want our hearts, and the evil one does not want us to give you our hearts. So, Lord, Send your spirit to guide us into the truth about you, who you are. May we get excited about this Christian hope in Jesus that awaits all of us through faith in him. And faith is very simple. It's just looking to Jesus as the one in whom we put our trust and whom we live for and who we proclaim to be our king, our king and therefore we serve him. And so, Lord, thank you for these words of hope from this criminal on a cross who the other side of death was received as a saint, one of your chosen ones, one of your set-apart ones to proclaim your glory in eternity. May we, Lord, be found with that faith, with that company, with that celebration, with that longing in life today. Break down the hardness of our hearts painful memories, bad situations that, that, are, that are hard for us to deal with, Lord. Break them down by your grace and your spirit that we may give ourselves to you with all our hearts, with everything within us, and give ourselves to others because of the love that you've blessed us with. You're knocking at everyone's hearts for fellowship and intimacy. Bless us this day, Lord, as we hear your voice, as our praises continue. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.